Good morning, everyone. I can't promise that we'll be here for long today because my voice might give in. But uh, now the kids have gone, we can talk about them. <laughs> so open with me to uh, Luke chapter 18. It's a very short passage, but there's a lot to it. It should be uh, on the screen as well. So Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. It says this, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not, uh, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning that we would be like little children at your feet, and that we would receive your word. The word of our Father. So Lord, we pray that you would open our ears, open our minds, and Lord, give us the trust that we can call upon you. Amen. So, it's a passage that speaks about children and God's heart for children. And I think one of the things that we're often very good at understanding from this passage is the application that Jesus makes from it, which is that the thing that he says at the end, you must receive the kingdom of God like a little child. And often, and in fact, even if you look at kind of commentaries, this is the only point that people take from this. We must receive the kingdom of God like little children. And so there's a sense there in which you have to make yourself in the same way that children just trust and they... Uh, are much more willing to go along with something than a lot of adults are. There's, I mean, you might call it naivety. You might just say that it's childlike bliss. I mean, Evangeline this morning just kept saying, am I going to my group now? Am I going to my group now? And there's a sense there in which, I mean, obviously it does get a little grating, but there's a sense there in which she knows that she can rely on me to get her to the places that she needs to be. So she doesn't say, yeah, how many more songs am I sitting through until it... She doesn't, she doesn't kind of ask for the system so she can work out herself. She wants to know, Daddy, are you taking me to my group now? And it's, no, I'll take you when I take you. So there's a sense of trust there. And I think that application is really important for us to know that God wants us to be childlike in our approach to him and his word and what he has to say. doesn't mean he doesn't want us to know anything. It doesn't mean he wants us to be ignorant. It means he wants us to have a trust which says, you're the father, we're the children, so we're going to listen to you and take seriously what you say. And I think that's really important. As someone who you know, loves theology, and I have done a degree, and I'm doing a master's degree in theology, I, I am very aware of the tendency I have to kind of turn God into a, a, an academic exercise that can be worked out. And I have to constantly remind myself, I have to be childlike coming to God. It's all well and good knowing him as this and that, and the God who did this and the God who did that, but do you know him as your father? Do you assent to him as a child does to their father? Sometimes children throw their toys out the pram. Sometimes they have a tantrum. I think God has a relationship with us, knowing full well that we do the same thing ourselves, but nonetheless, the children always come back to the parents. They know that they're their source. They know that they're the ones who they uh, get everything they need from, and so we need to have that childlike trust as well. But it is important to see that that is an application 
of this passage, that is not the main point. In fact, if we didn't have verse 17, that we wouldn't think that that was what was going on at all. It's only after the children, the real children, not the ones who are like children, the babies come to Jesus, that he says, and you must be like them too. And, and notice that it, it isn't just kind of toddlers and walking kids and kids who are old enough to kind of think through the, the deep things of Jesus and think, yeah, I want to follow him as my Lord. It's babies. In verse 15 that it says, people are bringing babies. It's the same word here that Paul uses in uh, 2 Timothy 3 when he says to Timothy, and you from infancy have known the Holy Scriptures. So when Paul's saying that to Timothy, he's saying you grew up in a home that knew and loved the Lord, and so as, since a baby you've been hearing these things. And so these are not, as I say, toddlers or children or teenagers. These are from the smallest. There does seem to be some because Jesus calls them to himself and says, come here, you can't really do that with a baby. But nonetheless, we're talking about very little people here. Now, I think the first thing that's assumed in this passage is the great value that God places on children in a culture, both then and now, that places very little on them. So the disciples' outrage at this seems to be because you are just a waste of time to the master. Why on earth would he have time to bring you to himself and to bless you when there's other people around here who need them? And Jesus' rebuke there assumes you are not valuing them as highly as you should. And the reality is, since then, not a lot has changed. Even today, we place a very low value on children. We have a very kind of sentimental view of children in terms of, oh, they're sweet and innocent and all these kind of things. But in terms of the way that we value them as a society, there's kind of a, a cultural disposition to see them as a necessary evil or something that we have to put up with until eventually they can move out. So, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was probably three weeks ago that me and Anna were at the supermarket and the family in front of us, the father was putting the kids in the car and, you know, they were doing their thing, having a tantrum. And he looked over at this and said, who even wants kids? And I think he was expecting us to go, yeah, know what you mean. And I thought to myself, imagine being that child, the, the person who has brought you life, the person who has uh, brought you into the world and tends you saying, it would be better if I didn't have you. And I don't think that this person, this family, necessarily stands out in our culture. This is, a, I think, a, a, a culture-wide phenomenon. So if people do want to have kids, save it till way later. And even then, you know, complain about them all the time. You even see this, for instance, in the way that um, it has been legal in this country for over 70, 70 years now to kill children in the womb. And we cover this up as a women's rights issue, forgetting the rights of the little women who are being murdered. And so the value of children has been incredibly lowered in the last few hundred years. Plato once said, a culture cultivates that which it honors. And what he was saying by that is if you go to, for instance, ancient Greece and they use uh, olive oil in all their rituals, they grow a load of olive trees. Or even a, nature, uh, a nation like America, they're obsessed with this concept of liberty. So you go to America and everything is about liberty. They want to cultivate liberty. So what does that phrase have to say about the massively declining birth rate across the world? If we cultivate that which we honor, how do we explain the fact that 15 years ago, global econo uh, economists talked about overpopulation? How is this planet going to survive as we keep growing? 
And now, global economists talk about the massive impending danger of population collapse. So you need at least a birth rate of 2.1 to have society just function as it does. So if you think about it, if you have a business, you start small, you start to grow it. Uh, if people start laying off, it's not like you can just say, oh, it's okay, we'll just wind the clock back to when we were a smaller business. Because you've now set up the infrastructure that demands more people. And so if those people just leave, you find the whole thing falls down. To use a slightly sillier example, if you've seen Avengers Endgame, 50% of the population leave, and it's not like they go, because actually, can I say, if 50% of the population left, how far back do you think we'd be going? We're going back to 1971. Isn't that interesting? But they don't just say, it's okay, we'll do what we did in the 70s. Because all the infrastructure is built to have more people. So you need a minimum birth rate of 2.1. Right? Birth rate in Europe, 1.6. Birth rate in Japan, 1.1. Massive global economies, which in 15 years are going to collapse. And it's a danger at our doorstep. Africa has a birth rate of 4.4 and is one of the gr uh, the projected to be one of the fastest growing economies. So this is not to just say that, you know, um, let's have kids and save the world. Well, maybe I am saying that a bit. <laughs> I think it's, it's getting to that point of we cultivate what we honor. And I also don't think that it's saying that there's kind of a Christian or a biblical number of kids you need to have. Like, oh, I've had this many, that's how much God wants. But I think it is saying that God puts a great value on children, and he does command us to go forth and multiply. He doesn't say to this number, and so we're commanded to, to grow. Now, I realize that it doesn't, it's not always as simple as that. Some people will struggle to have kids, and I, you know, that's fine. I, I, there's a difference between saying, this is something we're not going to do, and this is something that we'd like to do, but it may not happen. But I do think we need to come back to that question of, do we value them? as gifts from God. Yeah, they're, they're difficult. You know, if you've had kids, you know this. We need to remember that Christian virtue of self-sacrifice, that Christian virtue. It's actually, it's not that in Christianity we think sometimes we just put up with things that are hard and that's what God wants. Actually, the message of the gospel encourages us to say things that are difficult, things that uh, put me through the works are actually good for me. They're actually an opportunity for me to carry my cross and to mirror my Savior. So actually, we should approach hard situations, whether it is um, kids or something else, knowing that self-sacrifice is a virtue in the Christian faith. In uh, Psalm 127, let me just read this quickly. It says this. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from him like arrows in the hands of a warrior and children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. So the Bible's message on children is they are heritage. They are a reward. They're not something that we just put up with. They're something that we rejoice in. And it's kind of like rejoicing in the trenches sometimes. Re rejoicing in the hard times that come with it. But knowing that we're putting an investment in not only for the world, but also for the kingdom. So this assumes in, in Jesus' response to his disciples the supreme value that children have in God's economy. 
And so they're not just time wasters. They're not just in a stage which makes them irrelevant until the point where they can start articulating things for themselves. And that's when Jesus takes notice of them. That's when Jesus goes, finally, you got through that stage, which, you know, only came in after the fall, and uh, now we can talk. No, Jesus says, babies, toddlers, children, adults as well, all come because there is a supreme value on human life that God has created. And so we need to challenge the culture. We need to be countercultural in our view of small people. We're very good today at talking about human rights. We are terrible about applying them across the board. The next thing that this assumes, not just the value to God in a general sense, but the value to them in his kingdom. So he actually says something that's quite, um, I think there's some difficulty in kind of interpreting this passage, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In what sense does the kingdom of God belong to children? I'm not sure I can give an adequate answer, but I think at the minimum, it does mean that there is not only a place, a potential place for them, but there is a place for them. Now, even as very small people, members of our church, people who should feel at home in our church, people who should be hearing uh, the gospel. We, we heard this morning in Deuteronomy 6 that God doesn't just say, I want you to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and hopefully your kids will too. It says, when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking in the way, when you're standing, when you rise, tell these things to your children. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate how much like a sponge children actually are. And we might think, well, I don't really understand it myself, so how am I going to explain it to them? I, I just say, when I was, um, I must have been about six, my brother explained the Trinity to me. And I think he said two things, and I went, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Now, as an adult, I think if it were to happen afresh, I'd go, right, there's some things I really need to work through here. And I think what I appreciate now is that actually abstract concepts, things which are hard to grasp, children just can take in. And so as, as parents or people who work with children, we've got to exploit that, I think. We've got to make the most of the fact that they're willing to learn, that they want to hear. And that also gets to a point which I think is really important, which is that even if you're here and you're not a parent or you're not yet a parent, this doesn't not apply to you because the church itself is a multi-generational family. So in Titus 2, Paul says to the church, I want the old men to teach the young men. I want the old women to teach the young women. There's a sense there that having a church where oh, we're an old church or we're a young church is not right. Just as much as in Galatians, Paul is saying you cannot have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. You're one church. So in the same way, that multi-generational thing means if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm you know, just some old git and I've got nothing to say, that is exactly what qualifies you to have something to say. But the other thing is, if, if you're a young person, you've drawn my eye now, this side of the room. No, you know, we were all teenagers once. We all know that as, as teenagers, there's the, sometimes the perception that what possibly could older people have to teach. You know, all their information has expired. And I think there's a challenge in the Bible. If, if you want to honor God, 
you're actually coming to a man who lived 2,000 years ago, and he's a lot older than some of the people here. So there's a real sense in which I think we have to honor the multi-generational makeup of the church, the fact that we are all one family. I mean, these two women here, Owen and Joyce, have been immensely helpful to me in the last few years. And I've been really blessed by just sitting down and just hearing the stories that they have to say from just faithfully plodding along in their walks with God. It's been incredible. And I, and I just want to publicly honor you guys, really. In the same way, Andy mentioned yesterday that we saw Josh get married, who grew up in the church, as did my sister, but I suppose Josh grew up in this church, and has been hearing the gospel since a childhood, has been growing, and has kind of just become part of the makeup of it. Now, I think because we kind of do uh, age-appropriate teaching, obviously they're in the other room, that shouldn't produce any kind of sense in which this is real church and they're the addendum, they're the appendix out there. The reason we do that, the reason that we want to do age-appropriate teaching is because we believe they're valuable to us. It's because we want them to hear something from it, that we don't want to say, church is a place for you guys to come to, and you just have to sit and be, uh, your kids have to just sit and be bored while we talk. We want them to engage. And so that's really important that we understand from, these are only three verses, but they are so profound in that we realize God wants the children to be involved in the kingdom as well. Not just in preparation. They're not the church of tomorrow. They are the church today. We also see this verse where Jesus says, let the children come to me. And I think we, we might have a tendency in English to, to understand the word let as kind of remove the obstacles. And, and obviously that's true. We want to remove any obstacles from children coming to Jesus, to knowing the Lord. The last thing we want to do is, is put things in the way. I heard someone who said recently, we might be better at teaching children how not to believe than how to believe. It was, a, it was a humorous comment, but what he was saying was essentially, he was talking about communion. And there's a child who says to her mother, I, I want to take communion. And she says, no, you can't. And it's like, okay, yeah, we, we do believe that there are qualifications to come to the table to take. But the thing to say is, no, you can't. Wait till you're older. It's encouraging the child to grow in the way so that they do meet those qualifications. So that the Bible says, for instance, that to take from the table, you have to discern the body. So how about rather than just saying, no, you can't come, is we teach them how to discern the body. We teach them to know the church. So yeah, absolutely, remove all the obstacles. Let the children come. Do groups. Do things like FYG and Bants. Do things so that the children can learn. And by the way, there's a challenge in there to get involved with those groups if you're not already. But the thing about this word let is it's translating a Greek verb. And it's more like in English when we say let's go. We're not saying, can we go? Should we remove any obstacles in our, in our path? It's saying, come on, let's go. In the same way in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. He's not saying, can we make allowance should light arrive? He's saying, I want light. It's the exact same structure that, God, uh, that Jesus uses here. Let the children come to me. In other words, you, bring them. So it's not simply that we need to remove the obstacles. It's that we are called to actually be winning the kids, to be bringing them in, to let them know the truth. Not to kind of have them in the waiting room until they're ready to hear it, but to be teaching them. And there are so many resources available. I mean... In the internet age, 
just Google some of the things that are available for young kids. Uh, we found a few years ago a, a catechism, a question and answers for very young children. I've just been doing it with Jelly over the last few months, and it's just very simple things. You know, who made you? God. What else did God make? He made all things. Jelly always likes to change that too. He makes all things, and my toys, and my animals, and my house. But, you know, she's going to do what she's going to do. And I've just been really amazed by seeing how someone who's two has been grasping the truth of the gospel. But also, I think in this, we need to remember, we need to understand that the weight of responsibility to ultimately bring people to that place of repentance is not in our hands. So that there's kind of, I want to kind of have a tension here. You know, I, I love to have a tension. On the one side is that we are called to teach them, to bring them in, to draw them in, to, to make sure that they have every opportunity to hear. And I want to say that's our responsibility, and I want to really firmly state that. But equally, the tension is, I want us to say, no person has ever converted someone. The Spirit of God does. So there's a sense in which if that hasn't happened, if, you know, let's say you've had a child who has walked away, you are not to kind of take that responsibility on yourself and say, what have I done wrong as a parent? You can be encouraged that these things are ultimately in God's hands. And I think that's, I want to have that just as much as I want to have that. And I don't think that's having my cake and eating it. Which, by the way, why would you have cake if you're not going to eat it? (laughs) So I think those are two really important tension points that we need to hold on to uh, equally. And so Jesus calls them to come in. And he blesses them and he lays hands on them. This is all the same things that we should be doing in our church, that we can be doing in our church. Valuing children, most basically, just valuing them, letting them know that we love them. You know? It can make such a difference, I think, when a child knows they are loved, not just by their parents, but by the people around them, by the people who are seeing them grow up. So we've got to love the children that God's put in our midst, for one, in a countercultural way. You know, I mean, for instance, I was speaking to someone the other day who said that they really struggle coming to church because every time their kids make noise, they feel like all the eyes are on them. Church should be the one place where if your kids are making noise, you know it's absolutely fine. You know, at the dentist's office, really embarrassing. When you go to the doctor's, really embarrassing. Church, fine. Because we're all used to it. Church is not only a place that you're welcome if you're, you know, 30 to 60 years old and you have no kids. So, noisy ones, quiet ones, messy ones, clean ones. We, we need to make the kids welcome. And, and I think with that, we also need to make it clear that the parents of those kids are welcome. I mean, think of the difference it would make if, if let's say you're a single mum and your kids are making noise and you feel every, all the eyes are on you and someone just turns to you and says, you, you know, it's absolutely fine. You don't need to worry about it. Just to have that reassurance. Now, you might be thinking, well, someone else is going to do it. Maybe you should be the person to do it. You know? This is all part of what it means to to value this multi-generational makeup that God has made that we call the church. So we're not going to hinder them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So the message, and it really is very simple. Let's do what Jesus says. Can we do that? Wonderful.
Now, you probably thought I was done there. I'm not quite. Because <laughs> I think one last thing I think is really important that we understand is that faith comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. And I think far too often faith is either understood as a correct articulation of doctrine or believing in something when you can't see it. Right, so uh, we could say, give me evidence that you're a Christian. We say, okay, well, let me explain to you justification by faith as found in Galatians 3. That could be one misunderstanding we have of faith, that it is a a correct understanding of doctrine. And I I, want to say, doctrine is really important. Doctrine is good for us. Doctrine is truth from God. So it's not like we get doctrine. Doctrine's good, but it's not faith. Equally, faith isn't just saying, well, I don't know if there's aliens or not, but I have belief, I have faith that there is. You know, evidence without seeing it. Faith, in the biblical sense, and even just in the normal sense of the word, is trust. If I were to say, for instance, I have faith in Rishi Sunak, it doesn't mean I don't know if he exists or not, but I just think he does. It's also not saying I can give you a biography of his life. It means I trust that he has the ability to do what he says he will. Right? That faith can be found in the oldest to the youngest. And we have to honor that faith. We have to tend that faith. And so with that, there comes a responsibility for us to be teachers. You know, me and Andy and anyone who preaches at the church, don't just do this so that you guys know more. There's a sense in which everyone at church is taught to teach. Is being taught so that they can teach those around them. So that the main instruction, the main nurturing of children's faith should be in the home. It should come from those who are around them all the time. We see your kids once a week at best. Well, twice a week at best, maybe. You see them all the time. So, don't just hear sermons or hear podcasts or hear what's said or do your Bible reading and say, that's great, that's really benefited me. That, that's good, that's fantastic. How are you going to take that and teach it to the next generation? To see people grow, to see that seed of faith nurtured and grown. That's what we want to see. Now I am finished. Let's pray. Uh, Yeah, Lord Jesus, your words are no less challenging now than they were then. And Lord, we, we are sorry. We repent of the fact that we have valued the ones that you value less than you. Lord, turn our eyes back to you. Turn our eyes back to you and the way that you see us and our children. May we be those who invite the children in, who teach the children, who love the children, who make it clear to them that this can be their home. Lord, we we want to stand opposed to our culture. and We want to say that children are good. They are good for us. So, Lord, help us to be a church that honors your commands. Help us to be a church that values the little ones. Help us to be a church that, even in our own lives, are trying to be like the little ones, as you command us. So, 
for the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.